Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this evening's Arts Tonight, 50 years ago in 1965, art history, then known as the history of European painting, was offered for the first time at degree level in Ireland at University College Dublin. The first students to study at the department, now the School of Art History and Cultural Policy, include many who have gone on to lead our cultural institutions, become key educators and scholars, as well as taking up positions of influence internationally. Brian Kennedy, now Director and CEO of the Toledo Museum of Art in Ohio, who was a student in UCD in the 1970s, spoke with me recently. But first, as the university marks this 50-year milestone, I met with three others who have contributed to art education and scholarship at UCD. Eileen Kane, Alistair Rowan and Christine Casey. I began by asking Eileen Kane about the department's early days and how things evolved over time. In the very beginning, uh, we were graduates. There was one undergraduate who was a student of history as well as art history. But uh, my own background had been in secondary teaching. Uh, I had studied French and Latin originally. Having been to France a good bit, I had wanted to do a PhD. But Françoise Henri had just started the department and she said, well, in order to do a PhD, you must have a primary degree. So I knuckled under and did a BA again (laughs) in history of art. And then we had people who were coming to do first arts. You know, in the beginning, we used to interview the students. One of the questions we used to have to ask the students was, why do you want to study history of art? or Have you done any travelling? And so on. Most of them had been with uh, a school outing or something like that, or to Paris. One said he had been to the Blasket Islands. (laughs) (laughs) And why not? (laughs) Why not, exactly. (laughs) Who was that? That was Professor Murish O'Sullivan. He became Professor of Celtic Archaeology in UCD afterwards. And he did history of art, he studied history of art with us and archaeology. And so I, he was speaking from the heart he when was. he said that. <laughs> That's right. Um, Christine, you were one of those early students in the department. What struck you about it then? And did it influence and how did it influence the direction you took after graduation? I suppose it was small because I read history, which was vast and uh, with history of art. It was odd, too, because there was a closed door on the department and a bell. And the historians used to poke fun and say that we should put the milk bottles outside the door. You went to the National Gallery with Eileen, with Alistair. You went out looking at buildings, very privileged. I mean, the the class was roughly the size of James Joyce's, the, the photograph of his final year. So small, direct access to highly skilled people. So that meant that there was nowhere to hide. You absolutely had to stand in front of the portrait and say something. Alistair was a new professor when I came. Um, That was the introduction of architectural history. I wanted to be a school teacher and he stopped that uh, by refusing a reference and offering a job, which I took. And it's a good uh, strategy. <laughs> yeah. And so it went from there to we, we, we published a book together. And then subsequently, I um, worked on Newman House, which is UCD's 18th century, uh, two 18th century houses, which Alistair had also worked on. And then from there to a PhD on to uh, a lectureship. And so it wasn't quite what I had expected. And the rest is history. What had sparked?
sparked your interest in art history in the first place? The most wonderful nun in school, Sister Margaret Mary, um, in the Louis Convent in Dundalk, who was an absolute angel who encouraged uh, me to look at art and to look at history and also where I come from. We used to hitch up to Newgrange and then you could just arrive at Newgrange and walk up, sit back against the stone. So... Um, you know, I mean, I'm teaching students at the moment every day. I've just come from a class to, to here. And if you ask them to do something, choose a building, they will always choose something that means something to them. And it starts from there and then progresses. Alistair, um, as Christine said, you, you became the first professor in the department. Mm-hmm. That, that was clearly a milestone moment in terms of the development of art history as a subject in UCD. Um, and in it, it must have been a great, great moment for you as well. Uh, the college felt that they wanted to give uh, more prominence to the topic. It had been, under François Henri, called uh, the history of European painting, because that goes back to her French experience. I changed it to the history of art, and we added sculpture and Paula Murphy, who was a pupil and then a colleague, became a very distinguished uh, historian of sculpture. And, of course, Christine is now the professor of architectural history in uh, TCD. I myself trained as an architect. I then did a PhD in Cambridge. And, of course, it was an enormous privilege to come to UCD. I found it very exciting. The college had only recently moved out to Belfield. I liked Andre Weichart's buildings. I thought they were exhilarating. I enjoyed the microclimate. Some of my colleagues didn't quite share my enthusiasm, but uh, I think by the time I left, we had something like 90 students in first year. And it's very important because there's this whole issue of understanding visual material. I always say, if you look at how Irish businessmen dress, you realise the need for art history. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Eileen, uh, for you, did students instigate changes uh, as much as perhaps the the growing staff in the department (coughs) initiated change as well? Yes, they did. There was a desire for modern art. François Henri could remember having met Claude Monet, <laughs> who died in 1926. So our le- lectures tended to, to end there, as it were. In Alistair's time, the introduction of modern art uh, history was very important. Another course that Alistair introduced was the history of art history, the, the historiography, if you like, of art. And I think that's terribly important. I think that François Henri laid a very good and very strong, very sound uh, foundation based on her experience at not just the Sorbonne, but more particularly the École du Louvre for the study uh, of art history. And I think she gave us a very, very good start. Did she bring that kind of rigorous she French did. style to, she did. to teaching? She, she really did. Uh, exactitude was <laughs> definitely <laughs> to be desired. <laughs> yes, but also in what she instituted, in what she set up uh, in the department, like studying an individual artist in depth, like studying uh, an ensemble of paintings, like, for example, the Arena Chapel in Padua. Those were things that she took uh, with her, if you like, from her French training. Uh, I think they're important to any school of art history. You must have the 
a strong foundation, I think. Alistair, that, that rigour. Well, I was going to say uh, rigour and discipline. Uh, I think when we introduced the history of art history, that was astonishing for the students because most students think art history is sitting in the dark and looking at pictures, and it very largely is. They then learn that it's not really just thinking, oh, how lovely that is, that the history is the essential discipline of art history. But when you do the history of art history, where do the ideas come from? Are they true? Uh, They suddenly feel their brains expanding, and as well as that, it's very startling because they sit in a light lecture theatre for a whole hour and have ideas shoved at them and then begin to exchange these ideas. And I think that, in a sense, was part of our credentials as a serious subject. And I think we should mention the Persa Griffiths lectures. They are very important because for many, many years now, both in UCD and Trinity, but starting in UCD, there were these lectures free for members of the public. Christine, I'm just wondering, you know, how do you... How do you assess the the legacy of the original art history department in UCD and it's what it fed into and the creation of, of what is now the Department of Art History and Cultural Policy? An empirical approach. There was never tolerance for navel-gazing. You had to make sense of the image. That was absolutely fundamental. I do remember someone saying to me from a different discipline sometime in the 1990s, do you know about the conceptual turn? Or, you know, has the conceptual turn passed you by? And the conceptual turn has come and gone. We now have, of course, the material turn. I feel that the grounding that I got in art history and that so many of my fellow students got gave us what we actually now need, um, which was the kind of precision that Eileen was talking about, the kind of interpretation that Alistair was talking about, but all was rooted in reality. So I I think that's certainly what I got from it. Can I ask you all, you know, what developments you'd like to see in the teaching of art history in schools in general? Because we're we're looking at those increased numbers now taking art history. Eileen, you were a teacher. Well, I'm not qualified to answer that directly because I taught French and Latin. Mm. But I would like to see the history of art uh, as part of the teaching of history because it, it has to do not just with the practice of art but also with the history of ideas, the history of civilization, the history of, of culture. Part of Francoise Henri's idea and part of what we did, I suppose, in the beginning was that we would form a body of people who were well qualified to teach history of art, well qualified to be members of staff in the cultural institutions. And I think the department achieved that very well because the National Library, National Gallery, I should say, uh, of Ireland, its staff came from among our graduates, the Hugh Lane Municipal Gallery, the Crawford Gallery, and so on, all those cultural institutions. But I would put all of that on, on a level with teaching, that the teachers of art history, we could have historians, provided, of course, that they were also qualified in, in our art history itself, yeah. Christine, would you concur with that, that, that the teaching of art history in, in our schools might actually come under the umbrella of, of history? I think that really increasingly art history 
is becoming cultural history. I mean, it's a problem. Does, does it remain a discipline? It has enormous potential. I mean, the visual uh, memory that you build up has applicability in so many fields. Alistair, what's your take on, on this? I would like school teachers to realise art is all around them. One of the tricks that we did with students right at the start in UCD for a number of times, we would go away for a weekend just to say, what is history of art? And we always broke them down into groups of about four or five and they had to bring a postcard and they had to talk to the others for two minutes about why they liked the postcard. And that gave us as staff a very clear idea of what they knew and what they'd been shown. And some were brilliant and others would just say, well, this shows two men in blue and a lady in red. And, oh, I like it. And they, they couldn't go anywhere beyond that. So I would like school teachers to realise that they can do it. Just take the children outside and talk about what the visual stimuli are. Um, I just think about, um, I suppose in Ireland, this almost this devotional level of attention to to text, you know, to the written word, to poetry, to fiction, to literature. Over the course of years and, and decades and your own observation, do you think there's been a, a slight shift towards a greater appreciation of the visual? Our culture has changed entirely. My granddaughter walked up to the television screen the other day and started trying to swipe it because she knew how she could change images on a mobile phone. And what age is she? She's five. Uh, She started doing that when she was four. But it must change uh, because we're bombarded with visual images, which we simply weren't when Eileen and I were at school or starting our time in university or even when Christine arrived at the college. And you've all played your part in that development. Uh, Eileen Kane, Alistair Rowan and Christine Casey, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. you. Brian Kennedy, now Director and CEO of the Toledo Museum of Art in Ohio, was a student in UCD in the 1970s. I asked him how he took up art history in the first place and how it has shaped his life since. Well, it started uh, as an enthusiasm as a boy when I was a teenager and I was given a a postcard of a painting by my aunt and then I went off to research it um, at the National Gallery and... uh, found out it was a fairly minor artist, but I thought the National Gallery Library was amazing with so many books. And then I started going to the gallery to lectures. And I went every Thursday during school time for quite a few years. But all the time I wanted to actually be an architect, like my father. It was when I got the points for architecture, I realized I didn't really want to do that. I really wanted to do art history. So like I went in as the most enthusiastic student and people say, you live to work, work to live. Well, for me, I mean, I've just had my, my work as my life. And Um, I've just always been involved in the thing that I came to love very early on. What made that change happen, you know, from the desire to study architecture to this certainty that you wanted to study art history? I mean, you you started this collection based on on the postcard from your from your aunt. And I think you began to to amass something of a of a store of of images that I presume fed that instinct in you. Yeah, I mean, you could say I was compulsive obsessive, but I I mean, I had thousands of postcards by the age of 18, but I'd also written on the back of them. You know, I'd be doing a, a little research on them. So when it came to doing slide tests at Art History, it was no problem at all. But I think that the switch was because I saw my own father. As many architects, once you become more senior, you don't actually design much. You know, you organize uh, designing of buildings with builders and deal with a lot of legal problems as well and all of that. So it was very stressful. And I thought that the world of pure engagement with art was more attractive. 
I mean, I now know, like what we learned before the age of five is very, very important. And I went to Montessori um, at, at Cyan Hill in Black Rock and I was sent off there at two and a half. I did junior infants three times, apparently. Um, obviously, my mother wanted to get me out of the house. Um, <laughs> but that idea of stimulation around the senses, which is inherent to that educational process, and then taking that forward in all the ways that I was educated in uh, hobbies that you know I learned to enjoy and things that we did as a family very much stimulated me. What was the art history department in UCD like when when you started? How many of you were, were studying in, in your first year? I recall, I can be absolutely sure, but I think it was 15 and uh, there were five um, men and, and 10 women and I'd gone to an all boys school so I, I thought this was incredible, you know, that we were sort of outnumbered by these gorgeous ladies. It had come out of European painting and sculpture and recently become the history of art. You know, the professors uh, at the time John O'Grady, Eileen Kane, Nancy Dunshack, and then Professor Alistair Rowan, who'd come in relatively recently as an architectural historian, um, were brilliant, brilliant lecturers. Field trips, I think, were, were pretty important as well in, in, in those early days, you know, heading off to Photo House or Rusper House, Florence Court, and, and then to, uh, to cities like London and Paris. I mean, I became a great friend of Alistair's and we'd go off on day trips and he, he was very involved in, you know, research of buildings of Northern Ireland and uh, introduced me to all of that. Uh, my parents had started out in Belfast. I was very curious about it um, and sort of the late 70s were when we did that. In terms of London, I headed off over there myself and that was the first time, I, well, I'd been with the Boy Scouts to Lake Windermere and nearly drowned actually in my teens, but um, went back to London and um, spent time just really walking. I literally walked London, staying in a in a working men's hostel and sharing a room with a huge man um, from County Sligo, which is where my mother's from. And uh, he just thought this was weird. I mean, there was this young man coming from Dublin who wanted to go around looking at churches and museums. And he was very protective of me. And I, I could just see two Irelands. You know, there was the Ireland of opportunity that I had. And there was Ireland of, you know, destination that he had onto the construction sites of London, um, you know, staying on the Kilburn High Road. And then in Paris, um, a few years later, I spent uh, quite a lot of time actually on, on a boat on the Seine um, just at the point of the Ile de Grand Jatte uh, at the Pont de Neuilly and um, I went back there for 10 years and Paris became sort of a pilgrimage city, my sort of introduction to travel. When you left UCD then, what was your initial career plan? Did you have one? I mean, I, I think you went into the civil service to start with and I mean, mm. it, it, there's been, there been many lines since then, but a very interesting first job in the civil service. I did. Um, I joined the Department of Education and my father's father had been a district schools inspector. So I knew a lot of the folk there, or they sort of came to seek me out. This is rather interesting for them. And I was in a, a section um, which looked after tra- what was called Travelling Teachers for the Blind, um, which seems like an anachronistic term to us now. But it was really fascinating to me because it introduced the whole concept of uh, Braille and of felt language, which I came back to, of course, much, much later. But at the time, I was fascinated by it. Uh, but I only stayed there a short period of time before I, I moved. Uh, I went in and out of the civil service three times, actually. Um, I don't know how they let me back in, but I resigned twice. And then I came into the National Gallery. So I clearly didn't want to be a bureaucrat. Um, th- that also led you to to the, if you like, the greater landscape of, of Europe, the early days of, of Ireland within the EEC. Yeah, I um, applied for a stage um, to become a stagiaire. And there weren't that many. I think there were just 10 at the time. Uh, we went off to Europe in 1983 and we were there for pretty well the year. And opening up to all the third countries that were part of the European community, which was only 10 members at the time, Greece had just joined, um, was fascinating. But also just the idea of other cultures, other languages, other ways of seeing, um, other ways of being. I mean, to 
today people travel so much, but even like when I was starting out, people didn't travel that much. So I got a very early start on that, I think, um, which became something that I wanted to continue to do. I saw it as a way of opening out, out, out and keep on going. And you did. Um, deciding then to do uh, a master's uh, brought you back to UCD. Um, what did taking the great Chester Beatty Library in Dublin, its collection, and Chester Beatty himself as your subject, teach you in in relation to, it was, it was again, the, the richness of, of world culture, visual culture, and it's sometimes how it finds an unexpected home, for instance, in, in Ireland. I remember my youngest brother's a long time after everyone else, his family of five, and uh, the gynecologist was on Shrewsbury Road, and so going in with my mother and going into the Chester Beatty Library, and so this is long before it went to Dublin Castle. And it was fascinating um, to have the possibility of other cultures and to see what people were capable of over time. And clearly it was also the, um, the world of the written document and the illustrated document, um, the history of the word. Um, and images as words and words as images. Um, so I became fascinated about that. And of course, I met people from around the world because it, it attracted experts. I mean, I showed the person who's now the emperor of Japan around. You know, I, I mean, I remember Kevin Myers writing a piece about it in the newspaper. I was meeting all these people and thinking, goodness me, and uh, learning about Chestabiti. And I became fascinated by him and why he collected and how he collected and all the people who helped him collect. So that became my, my topic. And I wanted to do it in history of art. But at the time, you know, I asked and it was more like, what is cultural policy? And it wasn't part of history of art. And of course, today we, we have art history and cultural policy. And my subtitle for my thesis was a, a study in cultural politics. And this became your first book as well? became my first book. Uh, Tom Turley in the Glendale Press, he committed to doing that. And um, it was wonderful. I mean, your first book is a big deal. Um, everybody who's done one knows. And you see yourself in the, you know, your book in the bookshop. And you say, I did that. My goodness, how did, I, how did that happen? Um, and so it became, I think, the fuel to my writing. And I've been doing a lot of articles and the like. But it also made me committed to trying to improve the situation um, for arts policy in Ireland. And we'll talk about that in a while. Um, joining the Government Publications Office after that, and then you worked in the Department of Finance. Um, again, that must have been invaluable. Because I, I guess finance is pretty, pretty important in, in the world of the visual art. It is. Um, well, two things, first of all, about uh, the government stationery office. Um, first of all, I was going to Europe and I was responsible for European publications. And it did fascinate me that everything had to be translated I and mean, mandated to be translated into all of these languages. And it wouldn't be great if we could find some way where everybody could communicate together. But also, I was charged by this, uh, the controller of the stationery office. He said, would you look after all these publications from Angoom? And I went to this warehouse. You can't believe how huge it was. And so this was pre, pre Kaijon, you know, pre the standard Irish. And so nobody could really read them anymore. There's no use for them. Yet the illustrations then were phenomenal. So all I could think of to do was to send them to every copyright library in the world and even some that weren't. Um, and then we kept some copies and all of the others were pulped. Uh, yeah, that beautiful, beautiful old script and then those... Great paper jack- and yeah, beautiful and uh, covers, the quality of the design of the just, just jackets. And um, illustrations sometimes by people like Jack Yates. Jack Yates, lots of them, uh, just really wonderful... Uh, Beautiful books. And of course, I, you know, I asked controller, can I have some of them? So I still, I have a box of them somewhere. If you love books, you just love the feel of books. That taught me then, of course, to start researching some of the artists in them because some had been forgotten. They'd worked, if you like, directly for the government. But the finance was, was just, it was an amazing time to be in finance. I um, was there at the time when it was really only one word you had to understand in, in finance, and that was no. Um, so it was that sort of f- fiscal austerity of Mr. Hahi. 
I think it's still a pretty important word. Pretty important word. <laughs> and finance has, you know, you at the time you really had to have a first class honours degree in anything. And so we had these tea clubs in the morning and the afternoon, and it was so stimulating. They were from all different parts of the educational, you know, forum. You know, so some were sent off like me into supply division, which effectively deals with words, all the reasons why you can't have something or can have them and all the arguments. You know, and then the economic division, the budget division were the other two. But I learned about money and um, you know, I've never put an institution into the into the red ever. I just I'm I'm just rigorous about and inventive about um, uh, finding money. And so that was, I think, something that really helped my career no end. At the same time, you were busy working on on your doctorate, uh, study of arts policy in Ireland since independence. Uh, That too would become a book, Dreams and Responsibilities, and a book, I suppose, that gave rise to some controversy. Mm. Remind us of of that time and the response to the book. Well, I want to say that Sean Cromian, who was the secretary of the Department of Finance, was really tremendously good to me. And he actually read my thesis and gave me all notes back and everything. And he was secretary of the department. And so I had a great sort of sponsor. People wanted me to study this sort of thing, which was, of course, civil service files as well. But the controversy was, was something that was totally unexpected. I mean, I had written in particular, it appeared about uh, the foundation of Astana and I'd talked to everybody except people who were active in politics. And that was a decision I'd made. I mean, I was a civil servant also. And I don't know what happened anyway, but hundreds of copies of it were shredded under the direction of the director of the Arts Council. Um, subsequent director reprinted it again, and it's still on their website, I believe. Um, it appeared at a conference at the Irish Museum of Modern Art with a, a brochure written by the then advisor to the, the Taoiseach with a elastic band around it, which was described, I think, in the media as an intellectual condom. And I mean, these sort of things were happening. And I thought, this is seriously weird. I mean, I'd written a history book. So it became a controversy indeed. And um, I realized how sensitive, of course, arts politics is. People have different views and there's different ways of seeing things. Um, and uh, anyway, it's long in the past and it was a minor matter on one hand, but every so often I see another article about it and there were editorials about it. And Fortunately, that happened uh, after I'd gone out of the civil service and joined the statutory authority that is the National Gallery of Ireland. And of course, the, the, the advisor to the Taoiseach at the time was Anthony Cronin. It was. And, uh, well, you know, he can answer for himself. But I mean, I so researched that. And it's true. I hadn't talked to him. So his point of view wasn't in it. I give him that. Well, let's just put it in short. If it, for, for people who remember what Gubu was, it was part of Gubu politics. Um, it was very strange indeed. Did you feel that it impacted on your career in Ireland or that it, it had the potential to impact on it? Not at the time. Um, I think, you know, the chance to leave Ireland was um, purely circumstantial. and had nothing got to do with anything about that. I think subsequently the nature of what seemed very small politics to me, um, and I'd studied that for both of my degrees, and was that something that maybe I hoped that a bigger place would not have, but uh, I've never let it really dwell. The position then of Assistant Director of the National Gallery Huge opportunity for you. You were very young. Uh, It meant that you were moving into arts administration at a really senior level. Some terrific things Mm. happened in your time there with Raymond Keith. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I landed into this uh, job and, um, I mean, I was on fire. I was sort of like Speedy Gonzalez. I wanted to get on with everything. So, let's get money from finance. And I knew where it was. And uh, great civil servants helped us to get money. We refurbished the gallery and, you know, it was leaking and it had terrible problems. Um, But lots of discoveries, you know, 
So one of the surprises uh, that we had was uh, the most uh, popular postcard in the gallery was by uh, William Leach. It was the Goose Girl. It turned out to be by uh, an English artist, Stanley Royal. So that was quite a surprise and a comeuppance. And there were bigger ones. Uh, you know, the bite paintings were coming back at the time. And the idea that they were being used as collateral in drugs deals was just incredible. You know, one came back from the Netherlands. The Metsu came back from Turkey. Then the discovery of the Murillo and uh, that Rosemary Mulcahy then later worked on um, in uh, the Murnahan's house in, uh, in Merrion Square, down in a, the mews at the end of the garden. Our, our installation crew, you know, walked it up to the National Gallery. Great missing large painting. And the most important one, of course, was the Caravaggio, uh, which was discovered uh, um, in the Leeson Street uh, Jesuit house. Father Barbara had asked for the paintings to be conserved, and I brought Sergio Benedetti over there, and he knew what it was. And obviously, that's a huge story. Um, the Lost Painting, the book, you know, tells that story as a film script, I have to say. I didn't particularly like the characterization of myself as a bird-like young man or something like that, um, lanky as well, but um, he was also flattering. But it was a great yarn. Um, and of course, it was a huge story internationally. But uh, the, the biggest one was really the development of the gallery. And I mean, Raymond was a visionary. I mean, he saw those buildings on Marion Square, 88 and 89, and then on Clare Street. And you know, the idea of heading off to try to buy them and all the trouble that the footprint of the gallery now compared to the footprint then it's very different. And of course, it will be in another short while when the whole expansion is over, which really was envisaged at that time. Did you continue to communicate with people in UCD? I mean, did, did, did you retain those links to the department in UCD through those well, years? Well, Dr. Eileen Kane flattered me greatly by um, involving me in the Purser Griffith Lectures. And of course, you know, we used the works of art in the National Gallery of Ireland. So it was something that I, I, I loved doing. And Alistair got me involved in uh, ICOMOS, which was the International Council of Mus- Monuments and Sites and um, as secretary. And we'd go off various places. And, you know, at that stage, Ireland was only beginning to realise there was a whole lot of possibility in cultural funding. Uh, from international sources and we were sort of in on the early part of that uh, I became fascinated by thatched cottages uh, and uh, how to get um, support for, for thatchers so that we could fix those the collector in you, you know, sparked off as it was very early on by those postcards from, from your aunt. That mm. continued, I think, as well. I mean, both in terms of art history and then collecting art paintings. Yeah, I mean, when you go into art administration, you've got to be very careful. Um, I mean, art critics probably shouldn't collect at all and art museum directors should be careful too. But this was while I was in finance, I bought my first work of art, which was I'd become fascinated by, through on Goom, um, by periodicals, the Irish Monthly Studies and Furrow and so on, but particularly by the Capuchin Annual. And I headed off to try and buy every single one. And I got a great break because um, uh, Sean T. O'Kelly's um, Vanny Kellig had just died. And so I went to the estate sale and I got like the first 30 there. Then I saw one day in a bookshop, some shopping, high on a shelf, I recognized immediately, that's Father Senan, who was the editor. And so I bought it, and it was a Sean O'Sullivan drawing. So that sort of started me on collecting, um, I, you know, I'd collect young Irish artists and really just to support them, because if I really liked them, and also I wrote a few catalogues of young Irish artists at the time, um, Mary Foley, Aileen McKeough, James Hanley, people like that. And that was also opening me to contemporary art. The Capuchin Annual. It was quite a remarkable publication. The Capuchin Annual was extraordinary. The quality of the writing, the quality of the paper, the whole way that Father Senan went about telling a story of a cultural Ireland. I subsequently wrote about this, you know, the creation of an Irish identity in the free state. Um, and it was a very complicated sort of unpacking of, uh, a, well, it was post-colonial politics. But Father Senan came at it from the Irish Republican standpoint. Uh, it was over Sean Lamass's family's house in Capel Street that he had his office. Not his house, I think it was a shop of the um, of Lamas. It was also a journey into really trying to understand the development of 
um, arts and cultural policy in Ireland. The move then to Australia uh, mm. to become director of the, of the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. I mean, an extraordinary opportunity. And I presume also a big challenge for you at that time. It was one of those things um, that it's sort of a motto for us. If a door opens, will you walk through? And I've sort of spent my life just having a good look and then walking through. Um, so we got a call out of the blue one morning from Betty Church, who was director of the National Gallery of Australia. She, had, she was retiring. And Raymond had charged me with um, leading uh, the exhibitions that we're sending to America and Japan and Australia. Um, and so I traveled an awful lot and also to Australia in 1994. And I gave lectures there. So anyway, that was how Betty knew me. So I went off and, uh, I mean, through a circumstance, obviously, that was long, um, I got the job. So I was, you know, 36 I'd never run an institution, but I had, you know, learned a whole lot in Dublin. I think the biggest loss was, I suppose, I've always said it, that in a sense we de- deprived our parents of their grandchildren and vice versa. I mean, we had to visit, of course, and they visited. And of course, that's now 18 years ago. But Australia, I mean, I just absolutely fell in love with them. And Australian art, modern Australian art, is, is modern Australian quite art, astonishing, isn't it? Absolutely. The vibrancy of that very... Um, you know, polyculture based on indigenous culture, the oldest in the world, was extraordinary. And I particularly became involved with um, Aboriginal art and really trying to defend and improve the situation for Aboriginal people. And in lots of ways, one actually related to what we talked about earlier, friends of mine uh, encouraged in my last year to start up a program to help uh, elderly uh, Aboriginal artists who were losing their eyesight. And so they started clinics around um, in the central deserts. It's, it's well known here that at the time you were approached about the position of the of director of, of IME in 2000. How did that play out, as it were, for you? You know, Were you tempted? I was. Um, I had gone there and I was offered a seven-year contract and I thought that was too long. I was silly. I said, well, we'll do five plus two. But I didn't realise that I was actually a statutory officer of the government. And so if the government changed, I probably would change too. And so there was an election coming up and um, so I you know, spoke about this there and the Irish Museum Modern Art job came up at the time and so I agreed to talk first of all by uh, web conference and then uh, in person and then uh, I mean I had this extraordinary thing where on the front page of the newspapers in Ireland and Australia on the same day they were declaring one that I was going to the Irish Museum of Modern Art and, and the other because of course with that many hours ahead that I was staying and so I withdrew once I heard there was a fuss going on uh, two members of the board uh, first of all resigned and then the chair resigned and then several others. And my God, it was a total mess, but I was, I was out of it. And um, my chairman and uh, the minister in, in Australia were incredibly supportive and just immediately worked on announcing my next two years. And I mean, that was before I was even due the two years. And so the, the latter half of my time became very pleasant indeed, where the first few years had been rough. Um, the National Gallery of Australia, like the National Gallery of Ireland, needed a huge amount of refurbishment work. And uh, it was very controversial when, uh, you know, buy works of art for what were huge prices, in Irish terms, inconceivable prices. But I, you know, I learned so much and I was learning all the time. I mean, they took a risk on me, of course, and um, you learn a lot by your mistakes, of course, like everybody, like things you wouldn't do again. But you also learn hugely by the experiences that you have. So I'll be forever grateful. Remind us again about that controversy in relation to... Emma, at the time, I mean, there was a perception of, of political interference in what should have been, I suppose, a, an arm's length process. I mean, do we know what happened? Do you know what happened? And, and were you surprised at it? 
Well, I only know what I read and um, various people took an interest in it. I, mean, I remember Fintan O'Toole one stage doing like a full page in the Irish Times on it. I mean, there's no doubt things happened and people don't resign for nothing. And they said who had contacted them, but they didn't really name names. And there was no doubt that there were people apparently keen that I would not get that job. Um, whether that had to do with dreams and responsibilities or whether, as other people claimed, that it had to do with the fact that I would brought the Book of Kells to, to Australia and uh, the Heritage Committee and uh, the Minister at the time were against that, but the President and the Taoiseach were very much for it. And so was Trinity College, who'd actually requested it. I mean, they do own it, but Book Kells is owned by everybody. So, you know, there's no doubt that, um, you know, I've had uh, some controversies. And do you think those controversies will be told in full. I mean, the details of them will, will emerge in full, maybe by a young student, you know, the equivalent of you 30 years ago now, who look at, at that period of history. I mean, would you, would you hope that the full story would emerge in time? Yes, I would, because I'm a great believer in history and uh, in the methodologies of history. Um, history is always a version of what happened. Um, but, you know, the release of government papers provided people wrote things down and people, the bureaucrats generally do it if the politicians do not. Uh, so I think that a fuller story will be told. As part of a growth story, I think it matters. I mean, the arts and require um, arm's length to really be able to thrive. And um, if there is a political interference or people you know, working back stories and then denying them or whatever, I mean, it's no different from anything else. Um, I, I know exactly what it is, but uh, it's not ideal. A few controversies, I suppose, as well in, in Australia. The Damon Hirst, the famous sensation exhibition, mm. which you decided not to show yeah. uh, in the National Gallery. Uh, for instance, there was a lot of furore at the time about that. Why did you make that decision at, at the time? Well, I sent a team of people from Canberra to Brooklyn. Um, so after it was at the Royal Academy, where it created a lot of fuss, it was in Brooklyn. And Mayor Giuliani had created a big stink about it without having seen the show. Over-alleged Over, blasphemy. And uh, yeah, it was the, the Holy Virgin Mary um, uh, by Chris Ophelia, which ironically ultimately ended up in Australia, in Tasmania, recently sold. But what turned out was once we talked to people in the museum, all sorts of behaviours had gone on which would be contrary to certainly a government institution like the National Gallery of Australia but also to truth in practice. They weren't necessarily against practice at the time because practice hadn't actually caught up with it but uh, there were a lot of donations made by dealers supporting their artists in the show and by auction houses uh, and by the uh, collector himself and all these sorts of things would now not be allowed and so we made it on that decision. What was interpreted by what is a very liberal intelligentsia and if we can call it that, but art critics um, group in Australia was that, you know, this young Irish Catholic from um, from Ireland had decided that this was against his own sensibility. I mean, remember, I actually went after the show, so why that would be say, the case is beyond me. But I have taken a position throughout my life that I will never sue. And I think the most charming thing that was written about me at the time in uh, a periodical was that I was a self-flagellating Irish Catholic of the worst possible kind. And the only thing that was wrong about that was that I've never self-flagellated <laughs> but you know you take the rough and tumble and if you're in a public job and you've got a lot of authority and you can spend a lot of money you've got to be able to take it just like any other form of politics I mean it's a form of power and uh, you've got to be accountable to it so I never I mean it was rough and tough and I've got a very tough skin now um, but it was very difficult on my wife and our friends at the time because basically wasn't true. And the papers in future, I think, will show a different story around that. But they will also show that we were careful to consult and, you know, ask because we were a government institution. But we made the decision on the right reasons. So for you, it was about the integrity 
uh, of everything around the, the making of the show and and I suppose uh, again coming back to finances the finances around it well, it was actually that, and it was more than that too, which was that the arts advisors to Charles Saatchi were actually advising against it, um, I mean, maybe against his wishes at the time, and that the, the integrity of the artists was being brought into question. You know, if you're going to cancel a show, for God's sake, cancel it before you put it on. So in that case, maybe I should never have gone for it, but uh, it was a defining moment in my understanding of my own thoughts around censorship, around freedom of speech, around integrity, around doing the right thing, um, and that sometimes doing the right thing requires you to take take a big hit at the time and you have to get over it. In the end, I mean, I went out with that many parties out of Australia um, that people realised that, I, as, as they say, I mean, Australia is a, a fire test and I survived the fire. What show did you replace? That was that really uh, ironic. One with... We did this show which had been on at the Asia Society and I'd seen that. I was utterly fascinated and it was new Chinese art. It was called Inside Out. And of course, there was so much more that was ever more controversial in that show. But because it was from a different culture, it wasn't as offensive. I mean, people did wonder about it. Um, but it was a staggeringly great show. And uh, it spawned a lot of collecting that we did in New Chinese Art, which, of course, now, I mean, we bought for 100,000, 200,000 things that would be millions uh, today because of the growth of the Chinese market. That was in the year 2000. One big project I, I worked on, I, I saw a show called My America that was done by the Chinese artist Zhang Wan. So I decided we'd do My Australia in Canberra. Well, it involved um, several hundred people um, in the Australian winter, uh, naked in the sculpture garden, um, standing in basins, being uh, squeezed with red water, which looked like blood, and then walking up to the Australian flag and paying homage and saying where they originally came from. Zhang Wan, um, we had lots of sheep, and he then brought a little um, lamb into the museum all of them naked. And when I thought about that afterwards, I thought, everything's a question of perspective. Everybody was crying. It was so emotional. It was so beautiful. But when I thought, like, the fuss that was created about this and the opportunity with that, the world's a strange place and it's wonderful to be here. Moving then, as you did, from uh, Australia to America, there was nowhere, nowhere higher to go in, in Oz. Uh, what drew you to the States and you know, to New Hampshire and to Ohio, where you now are? When I was approached about Dartmouth College, I started to research it. And it's an extraordinary institution, um, extremely wealthy institution, but had this incredible art collection. And uh, so I started to use the art collection, you know, building on my predecessors as curricular material across the curriculum in every discipline. Um, and I was helped by the presidents of Dartmouth. It was just a joy to be five years in New Hampshire, which is very beautiful, of course. Dartmouth has a an endowment of $4.5 billion, um, and it's about 5,000 students. And so the museum was um, an opportunity to ask a lot of very distinguished graduates to support purchase of works of art, um, books, uh, publications of different sorts. I curated shows and I, and I wrote books um, uh, there. So that was a very fertile time. And you, you've described yourself as a, must be a professional beggar at times. You know, an awful lot of American uh, art museum directing is about um, being a professional beggar. Um, you have to be very good at it. Uh, development is, a, is an art. If you become good at it, you raise a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I've had to do that. Um, so the scale of funds is pretty significant. Talk to me about, um, coming back to the visual literacy and interests that have become central to your thinking our son had a lot of learning difficulties. Anybody who's had a, a child who needs a lot of support, you know, you have to fight very hard for it and fight against a system where people of people who don't need it. And so that I learned a lot there because he's got an incre incredible sensory learner. And then Aboriginal culture, of course, being a non-textual culture, taught me an awful lot. And then Dartmouth had been preoccupied with this through uh, uh, cognitive neuroscience and 
it's a, basically an undergraduate school, but they give out more doctorates in cognitive neuroscience than anything else. And so I became fascinated and that became my world. And it's been my world ever since, really, for the last uh, 10 years. And I presume that, that, that this is something you've you carried with you as well uh, in becoming director of the Toledo Museum, which sounds like an extraordinary institution. And just reading about it. Um, Toledo is, is extraordinary. It's, it was founded in 1901 um, by uh, the Libbies. Um, Edward Rome Libby had founded the glass company. Toledo's the glass city. It still has several Fortune 500s that are involved in the glass industry. There's been several buildings. There's six buildings altogether. But we have the original building by Edward Green and then a Frank Geary building of 1991. And then SANA, the Japanese Praxis first building in America in 2006. And this extraordinary collection, uh, which is constantly made better and better, um, we sell works that we don't think reach our A-plus grade. And um, so we would raise a couple of million a year in, in sales. And then we purchase uh, very significantly, said to be the most community-based American art museum. Um, so the ownership of the community towards the museum means that everybody loves it with a passion and grew up with it from the time they were little kids. So that sense of attachment is something that you fix yourself to and it's basically an educational project. And it's also very uh, strongly conscious of environmental issues. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a green institution. For the last 20 years we've worked on this and um, in my time, last five years, um, we have spent a lot of um, money saving a lot of money. So we have about 3,000 solar panels, 1,500 in the parking lot, 1,500 on the roof, LEDs everywhere, back of house, front of house. Um, we have electric car stations in the parking lot. We've got a, a big training and development program, travel program for our staff. I mean, people are our best assets. So sustainability is often seen as something to do with utilities or building. But the biggest sustainability investment in people. We're firing. I mean, people are coming to visit us from all over because what we've got going is true to people. And we do learn, need to learn how to see better. We need to understand what we see and we need to learn the methodology of seeing. I've yet to meet somebody who ever tells me that they did a course in how to see. And, you know, we take in 90% of information with our eyes. 30% of our brain cortex is given over to vision. You know, we've been trained with focal point learning and digits and letters for 500 years. And of course, that's all we can do. But the digital world has opened us us up to scanning again. And so that scanning is what indigenous people do. And it's what people who are less gifted at text can do. And so um, I've been noticing a lot of signals that we are moving into a visual world. And you, you gave a TED talk uh, on this theme. Tens of thousands of people watching. Were you surprised at the response to it? I was. I mean, for one particular reason, my father had just passed away and I thought I was very stiff, you know, because I was really concerned at that time about that. And yet I just did it. And it became, I didn't know this, but the only thing there do you speak visual? You know, visual literacy as being important uh, to our, uh, as a language. It, it became uh, the basis for what will be a book. It'll be a book on YouTube and a book on digital and it will have lots of platforms and our museum, Toledo Museum, has uh, really taken this on. So it's not me anymore. It's a whole museum staff engaged on this topic. You've also been to the, the, the fore of cultural rights in relation to visual art and for you, is that is that a key issue in the international world of the visual arts now and one that that needs more focus perhaps than it's getting in general. Absolutely. I mean, we've moved beyond the era of civil rights and human rights uh, to the era of cultural rights, embracing the other two. And cultural rights means recognizing the statehoods that exist today and not saying, well, they don't exist because they didn't exist in the past. International law has confirmed that since 1970. And so the obligations of international law and the recognition of respect for peoples whose heritage was pillaged 
pilfered, uh, looted, uh, removed without export license and so on, becomes very, very important. And I mean, lots of countries are refusing to do it. But America has been in the forefront since the Second World War and led the repatriation of Nazi looted heritage. I mean, it's believed maybe two million works were, were stolen by the Nazis. Uh, we've been working, first of all, on Nazi provenance art, I mean, art between 1933 and 45 that lacks provenance. Um, and more recently, it's with India, Germany, but also with Italy. And returning to them uh, works of art that we acquired, innocently acquired from dealers who were basically making money, but we lose that money and it costs a lot of money legally. There's no museum director, certainly in America, who won't be dealing with this issue every year for probably a couple of decades. And I suppose the, the Elgin marbles come to mind in, in this whole area, and I, I, mm-hmm. that's that's a, a bigger a bigger subject in a sense, but it is part of of that debate. I remember having a wonderful debate at Dartmouth where we set up two teams of students, and one had to argue why the Melbourne Elgin shouldn't go back, and one why they why they would. And the argument that persuaded me in the end, I was the judge, and uh, was that it's like uh, the adoration of the Lamb by um, Jan van Eyck in in, in Ghent or Gand, um, one of the great altarpieces um, that Dr. Eileen Kane used to teach us about uh, in history of art. I mean, the whole pieces belong together. Now, it's very different, maybe one might say, with the Elgin marbles, but uh, it's part of the same story. What, are we, what do we really feel about the integrity of objects and the integrity of buildings and what where, way were they removed? And, you know, obviously there are different views about that. And of course, there's this great gallery in Athens waiting for the marbles to come back. With, the with, uh, come with back. its um, reproductions. Um, uh, and of course, you know, for a long time, acid rain would have eaten them outside if they'd been outside. So there's all these reasons that can be given. But it's, it's more as a torchlight on, on the future, on what we need to do. And I mean, what we're facing in Syria is extraordinary. American museums, uh, and a month or two ago, we agreed that we would take in ISIS looted art. And now the French government has agreed to, to give it safe harbor until we know where it would come from. But um, after mili- you know, military weapons sourced by ISIS through drugs, um, looted antiquities is the second most lucrative source for them. So that's going into markets wh- of which we're part. And of course, so this is this is urgent. This is of now. Isn't it? We're not just talking about something that's historical. It's, it's something that's happening daily. It's happening daily and destruction of cultures for cultural, religious reasons. Um, and so it's the same story again and again that we come across in, in the arts. And uh, our job, if we believe in the power of human creativity and respect for um, the objects and the results of that creativity is to cherish them and nourish them and guard them and protect them and pass them on to future generations. A big question, I know, but I wonder what do you feel you've learned from these years, these decades of immersion in the world of visual art and and art history? I think in a nutshell, I've learned that vision creates empathy. When we can see somebody, not just look at them, really see them, we empathize with them, which means we don't want to hurt them. We want to help them. That's our human condition. People are people the world over. And so the value of art worldwide is something to get to know and celebrate as a human language. So the the art of the world is is what I live in now, and uh, and please God, hopefully I'll continue to do so for for quite some time. How do you see the future of of art galleries and and museums, and perhaps especially national institutions? National institutions have a responsibility. I remember my father used to say to me, you know, Brian, if you're given authority, you must use it. So we must use our authority, and we do have a lot of it. The, the biggest lesson to learn is that you know, in 1804, the world had a billion people for the first time. In 1975, it had 4 billion people for the first time. And now we have 7.3. And we've taken a quarter of the people out of poverty in the last 20 years as well. So the digital revolution is creating a communication platform for the world. And 
that's our possibility. And the language that we speak is a visual language. So the kind of holy grail of, of language is to find human language that everybody can interpret and, and understand in their own way. Because formal language is the only universal language, but the language of, of ideas and the language of, language of symbols and the language of meaning are the three um, ones that mutate depending on your culture. And so we'll always read them differently. But formal language is part of, I think, our human nature. Um, and building on it uh, creates a communication mechanism that business, which is running the world, wants as well in terms of branding and advertising. Um, but there's going to be huge effort put into this. And, of course, the source material for the ways that we've done that in the past, that we may have lost the ability to read in their meaning meanings um, frequently is, uh, is in the Art Museum. You use the term, do you speak visual in relation to this? Do you speak visual and the, the ability to speak visual? I mean, do you speak visual means the ability to read and write visual language. So when we've got several rooms in our museum which have whiteboard paint all over. I mean, if you can't express it on the wall, you know, you can't express it. And we also have, you know, our, our tables, you write on the tables. So it's to get this expressive sense of um, making meaning visually um, and also the way that we dress and the way that we look and the whole expression of who that we are, sustainability. Well, well you, have, you know, I see it, therefore I understand it. You know, whether you believe it or not is another thing. That is my world uh, and I think that we're making a big impact. We had the International Visual Literacy Association Conference um, for the first time in 46 years in an art museum last year at the Toledo Museum of Art. And this year it was again at an art museum in San Francisco. We must not so much talk about art history before we talk about the ability to read images and to understand objects. Um, just thinking about a number of artists uh, that I suppose you, you've worked to, whose work has meant a lot to you, you know, Sean Scully, uh, Frank Stella and Jules Olitsky. All of them, for instance, you, know, you, you said that it was through Aboriginal art that you know you you were led to the the work of Scully and you know, his abstraction and the I suppose the geometric abstraction of Stella, and then the the different that again this colour field area for Olitsky. Um, what connects if if it if there is that connection? I mean, what connects those artists? For you? It's a very powerful connection. I mean, I like big questions, and it just started to really enervate me. Why about 1910, in Europe did Kandinsky and America Arthur Dove self-proclaimed that this, they had made the first intentionally abstract work of art. So why did that happen in 1910? And what was going on in the period that was creating the abstract environment, theory of relativity, lots of things were happening, structural linguistics, um, which created this ferment. Um, and what is abstraction anyway? So I was um, taught by uh, Ken Tyler, who's the greatest American printmaker the last 50 years. I got to know him very well, first of all in Australia and then in America. And he said, Brian, if you want great art, work with great artists. So I've had this great privilege to get to know people and to talk with them in depth um, and particularly in the area of abstraction for 10 years. Um, in a sense, I worked it out for myself that for me, um, there's no such thing. Abstraction is either microscopic or macroscopic reality. We make it very small or we make it very big. And when it becomes very big or very, very small, it becomes abstract. And that was a revelation because it opens up such possibility. And Australian Aboriginal art is seen as abstract, but of course it's not at all. It's full of uh, cultural meaning that is largely known to those who are initiated to it. And that was very profound uh, revelation. And then when it was done, I then really started to work much more on the topic of visual literacy. I said, okay, now I understand that. So how are we going to really start to talk about the sense of possibility the world has around visuals? When you sat in your first art history class in UCD back in 1979, could you have imagined uh, the way your career would evolve and where it would take you? No, no, not at all. I mean, the gift that I've been given, um, the gift of my teachers, the gift of my 
family, the gift of my aunt in that postcard when I was 13, um, James White taking me under wing in the National Gallery and so on, has been the release into, I can't tell you, the happiest of lives. I mean, I've been just, I mean, we all have hard things happen to us, of course, but, you know, my professional life and my, you know, lived life are at, at one. You know, my father used to say that to me, you know, that you know, I was very, very fortunate and I am and I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Brian Kennedy, thanks so much. Great pleasure. Thank you. And that was Brian Kennedy, Director and CEO of the Toledo Museum of Art in Ohio. On next week's Arts Tonight, on the eve of the centenary year of its first publication, we look at A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce, when contributors will include Anne Fogarty, Luke Gibbons, Anne Enright, Elish Nagovna and Frank McGuinness. Join us then. Goodbye. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, is produced by Cleon and the Onloon.